So last week, Morgan covered the end of chapter 18, and we talked specifically about Peter's question on forgiveness, but we ended with the parable dealing of the, with the unmerciful servant. And I guess to kind of put just a cap on that discussion, I think we should not lose sight of the fact that the parable is primarily intended to remind us of the forgiveness that God has given us. The unbelievable amount of debt that has been lifted from us through God's forgiveness and then our own tendency not to forgive others. And that really is kind of the central point. We kind of were left with that ringing warning passage at the end where Jesus comments on his own parable by saying this is how it will be with anyone who does not forgive their own brother. Basically their heavenly father will not forgive them. And Morgan kind of wrapped that back into the same part earlier in Matthew dealing with the Lord's Prayer and how Jesus had highlighted that not only in the Lord's Prayer, but also commented on it there as well. So we were left with some real application points about learning to forgive, finding and identifying people that we should forgive. So maybe uh, we should continue to take that seriously and not let that lapse into this last week and just move on. I think forgiveness is something we all struggle with because we all struggle with a level of entitlement. Like we feel entitled to certain things. And that entitlement sometimes is very subtle. Sometimes that entitlement just comes from the nobody has a right to sin against me, when of course we know we sin against others all the time. But sometimes that entitlement is also just I'm entitled to certain things in this life, and it's hard for me to let them go. We all need to kind of work through that. Well, now we're kind of moving into a passage that Jesus is taking three teachings, and Matthew arranges them in chapter 19. We're going to be talking tonight about divorce. The Pharisees come and ask a question of Jesus about divorce, and then the little children who come to be blessed, and then the rich young man or the rich young ruler story. So let's go through those tonight, starting in chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and the things he just finished saying were the ones that Morgan led us through last week, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Beginning in this passage, Jesus is actually marching on the way to Jerusalem. You know, most people believe this is it. He's leaving Galilee for the last time, and he'll go to Jerusalem, where in the next couple chapters you'll see, we see the final Passion Week coming. He's driving towards the events of Palm Sunday and Holy Week. So he's on the road and these large crowds are following him. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why is this a test? The Pharisees are coming to test Jesus with this question. Seems like a fairly simple question. The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Does anyone know what the debate was about that they were trying to settle? I can't remember the specific, except that there are two leading thoughts of like Philil's camp and other persons and so one was more liberal and one was not like you could you know if a woman spoke if your wife spoke badly of you you could 
you know, basically divorce her for every reason. Whereas the other said, no, 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 that's, that's way too crazy. You can't do that. Right. The Pharisees were divided into two camps. The Hillel camp, I think, and the Shammai camp was the other one. And they took two totally extremes on this subject. So one extreme was that only in cases of marital infidelity or indecency, which most had took to mean like adultery, could you get a certificate for divorce. The other view is like you could do it for any reason. In fact, commentators look, and actually it's written in certain kinds of the interpretations, you could divorce your wife because she burned your dinner. That's how extreme the idea was. And we have to also be careful to understand what divorce meant in the context we're talking about here, and also the reference we're going to go back and look at in Deuteronomy. Divorce was a man just declaring unilaterally that I no longer want to be married to this woman. So it was a man's right to declare that. It wasn't like a court proceeding like we think of where we think we're not getting along anymore. Let's go to court and have somebody just dissolve the marriage. It was actually the ability to just declare you're out of here. And it was that simple in cases, but we'll see in a moment they had added some restrictions on that to make it so that it wasn't as easy. But this is the question they're asking him. For any and every reason, what's your position on it, Jesus? What do you believe about it? Now, this seems like it could be a, a charged question. Because you'll see that Jesus' response down here is something that we might be able to look at and say, well, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? So he's saying, let's go back to the intent. The intent is for them to become one, one flesh. And therefore, we shouldn't tear this union apart. That's the response that he would get, right? They are no longer two, but one. For therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate, okay? That's his answer. But why is it a test? Because right around this same time, they're trying to find out what camp he falls into. And more likely, it's not just a theological debate. The people that are listening to him, these great crowds that are following him, they want to know where he stands because most likely the vast majority of them, especially the men, kind of enjoyed this idea of having the right to just divorce the way they wanted to. So by putting Jesus in this spot, they're basically saying, let's see if we can get him to declare a position. And he actually declares an even stronger position. Not only do you not just get to get a, a divorce for certain reasons, he's saying we shouldn't allow it at all. That was the original intent trying to drive most people who are listening to this to think, oh, I don't like that. That's too strict. And if you'll remember in the story earlier in Matthew, John the Baptist was beheaded. And, in, and he was imprisoned to begin with before he was beheaded, primarily because he was speaking out against Herod's divorce and his later remarriage. And so they're trying to put him in a spot where he's got to declare a similar thing. Maybe if he takes an extreme view on this, he's not only speaking out where his followers might say, I don't like that rule, and I don't think I want to follow this guy. Something that we do all the time. We tend to decide whether we're going to follow God, follow Christ, by what it might mean to us or what it might result, rather than deciding, is this God, is he worthy of obedience and following? We kind of evaluate it differently most of the time, like, oh, you know, if I commit myself in that way, I'm going to have to live with these things, change these things, think these things. I don't like that. 
That's what they were trying to push him to do, and maybe get him in trouble with the authorities at the same time. So Jesus gives this answer. I'm not even engaged in the debate primarily is what he's saying. I think it's even more important that we not encourage it at all, let alone decide when it's appropriate, when it's not. Let's go back to the original intent. The original intent was that it should never happen at all. And then they asked this question. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And I think this is a good question. You know, it isn't like they made this up. They're referring to something in the law that said that if you were going to get a divorce, you would give her a certificate of divorce. Now, first I want to point out, it's not that Jesus didn't know this. In fact, if you go back to Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus had said when he was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So he knows the old standard, or the standard the way it had been interpreted, but he added, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. I think the Pharisees kind of knew that he had taken this position and thought, wow, let's get him to repeat that. That's not going to be popular with large crowds. So I think if it's going to be a trap that they're laying, it's not that they're caught catching him by surprise. He's already taught on this. But I want you to look at their question very carefully. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? The way the question's worded, it almost sounds like what they're saying is, why did Moses command people to get a divorce? Or why did Moses command people to give a certificate if they were going to get a divorce? And what they're really referring to is this part of Deuteronomy it's 24 verses 1 through 4, and if you read it very carefully, it's actually not a commandment that people divorce. It's not even an allowance that people divorce. Rather, it's a discussion in the law about if you divorce the first person, if you divorce your wife, and then she gets married to a second person, and then divorces that person, she cannot be remarried to the first person. It's kind of a very narrow situation and a complicated one that had been written about extensively, that people had written commentaries about and trying to understand how to put this into practice. But I think the main point for us is Jesus is again taking the question and saying, look, that may be what happened. That may be the way it's been practiced, but I'm giving you again the higher standard. There should not be divorce, except in this one case that he allows for. And in both places, he makes that same exception. So he's setting kind of a high standard for everyone. I don't think this particular question, by the way, is that good of a trap. But it is a question that kind of catches me a little bit. Because oftentimes we think, why is it that the law allowed for certain things, that Jesus is now setting a higher bar? Why not just set a higher bar from the beginning? In this particular case, if you just think about it, what's going on here is Jesus saying, that's what was allowed back then because of your hardness of heart. Watch how he answers this. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce. Remember, he's answering their question, why did Moses command 
something. He's saying, no, Moses permitted. Read it carefully is what he's saying. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. It's a hard saying. Some of us today would think that doesn't make sense. I know plenty of people who are in that circumstance. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like This part always bothered me when I read it before the Bible, so I don't really have a response to it, but that I always thought that was kind of a lame response. Like, well, because you had hard hearts back then, you weren't ready for this good standard. I, I don't know. It just felt kind of like a cop-out to me. Yeah. I mean, but be careful because... Is he saying the law was of a lesser standard or that Moses somehow permitted the standard to be that way? And some people would say, is there a difference? But here he's saying Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard. And I think it's something we should just struggle with for a moment if it, if it hasn't caught you. Because we kind of skim through this most of the time and think, well, I haven't divorced anybody. So <laughs> it's not, I'm not really going to marry someone who's divorced yet. So this, this, is, not, this is not for me. But it does have something for us about how Jesus is coming in both passages, both in the Sermon on the Mount and here, to say, this is what you've heard. This is what I'm setting for my disciples now. Morgan. I still think in both cases there's this idea that divorce will occur. I don't think Jesus is denying that either. Um, and so, I mean, there's definitely, there seems to be an elevation here. But at the same time, I feel like both are clearly saying that divorce is not, in neither case, divorce is not wanted. You know, I mean, it's not something that's being promoted. It's, it's simply a part of human sin and life, and I think it's always been that way and always will be that way. It's sad, and, and Jesus is certainly making it clear that there better be very few circumstances that this is supposed to happen in a disciple's life. Um, I mean, the harder things for me are to, to figure out, I mean, is there anything outside of marital unfaithfulness? I mean, because a lot of people would say, okay, physical abuse, uh, repeated physical abuse. Um, people would say even repeated verbal abuse to a large extent. I mean, these are certain things where I just begin to wonder well, where do those circumstances fall under this? Jason. I think in response to that, he's talking to males. So, and, and for them, at least under my understanding, the, it was males who divorced, not females who divorced. So, because of that, this, was, this is speaking to the males and saying there shouldn't really be any reason other than unfaithfulness that you should be divorcing. But it's not speaking to what a woman would think because they're not thinking about what a woman would think or why she would want to divorce. I think that might be true. He is speaking to men. So, the, by inference, if I could pull out of what you're saying... It's rare that a woman is beating a man. So this, so some people have fairly stated that we cannot, from this verse, extract a prohibition about saying that women in bad situations in their marriage, like in abusive situations, yeah, may or may not seek it. And, and this verse would be hard to use for that purpose because it was spoken to men. That's true. But I also want to point out that having spoken this verse to men, this is kind of a... Uh, a very egalitarian statement by Jesus. Notice that normally the way these things are stated, that if you marry another woman, you have made her an adulteress, right? That's the way it was 
previously stated, stated elsewhere. Here, it's said that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. The sin is now upon the man this time. So he's actually making a statement that gives us a very clear understanding that really the sin applies in both cases, right? And, and that's something new. That's something actually kind of provocative to people in the first century hearing that, saying like, wait a minute, you're saying that I could be wrong for divorcing my wife? Like, yes, you could be committing adultery at this point. You know, that whole feeling of divorce being at that level is something that is a little bit different, yeah. So if the phrase that's being used is marital unfaithfulness, if you take it just for those words, um, then physical abuse and verbal abuse would not be faithful to the marriage. Could be, except the word that's translated marital unfaithfulness is actually closer to like sexual indiscretion. Um, it's not just adultery though. There is a word that could have been used that means just adultery. So it's somewhere between those. So that's why it's hard to just look at this and say, well, this is going to answer every question about divorce. Let me show you why I don't think it can answer every question on divorce. What's Jesus' rationale for why it is that divorce is wrong? Because the two have become one flesh. That's the, the intent of God from the beginning. That's what he's saying. In the beginning, this was the intent. The two become one, and nothing should tear them apart. Well, even if you make an exception for marital unfaithfulness, the two are still being torn apart. Now, some people would say, well, that's because of the marital unfaithfulness, the sexual indiscretion, has already torn them apart. They've already shared somebody else and brought them into the marriage. Okay, I, I can see that nuance, but what I'm saying is it's still tearing apart what has been joined together. So I think I kind of go back to Morgan's comments probably right. Jesus is even acknowledging that this is going to happen. I'm just pronouncing that it's wrong. That's not what God wants. But I recognize that it's going to happen. And in certain circumstances, it's not counted against you as adultery because somebody has already defiled the marriage before that. Still very hard because we struggle in a society right now where the divorce rate is super high. And people are constantly marrying and remarrying. And we have to look at this and think, I want to point out, it doesn't say anything about like some sort of unforgivable eternal sin here, right? This is, he's saying it's wrong, just like many other things that we do every day are wrong. Philip? I have two questions. Well, uh, well first, the first one's a comment, actually. The first one, I thought, it's uh, interesting that it doesn't seem like he does necessarily condemn or even say divorce is wrong as much as like, that it is two becoming one, and then it tears it apart. And this is not necessarily that that's bad, but remarrying after that is bad. Like that in both the passages, it's like either the woman becomes an adulteress, or then and then after that for both of them, that then anyone who remarries or anyone who marries after that and either party like commits adultery. And it just seems interesting that it doesn't that that seems to be the thing that's wrong is remarrying after. Um, so it's more talking about remarriage than divorce potentially. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about, I'm not sure, because the whole idea of like having two become one flesh, like that, how that's very easy, since it's talking about divorce, but like how much is that really talking about marriage as much as just sex, like really when it boils down to it, like that you have like two becoming one flesh, does that happen like just when people get married, or if you have two people like having sex outside of marriage, did they already become one flesh, and so like this whole divorce thing still applies, but like... Well, if you've had sex outside of marriage, you've already committed adultery. You see, in the first century, especially in the Jewish culture, sex and marriage were, were like intertwined. There was, 
There, I mean, it's not like nobody had sex outside of marriage. What about the multiple marriages, like in Old Testament, you had like Abraham and like stuff. And, like, I feel like that that's critical to saying, well, how does this difference between Moses and the law and everything else? And you had like Abraham, just like, oh, I'll take my wife, I'll take my servant, you know, like. Yeah, I think by the time Moses gets down the law, I don't think that's going on any longer. That's number one. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying it's not even permitted anymore, okay? Uh, that's, that's the first part of, of looking at it under the law. The other question is when you look at those Old Testament passages about what happens with multiple wives, you're always having to determine, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Like, is this just describing what happened, the correct history of what these people did, and the consequences of what came as a result of it? Or is this like, hey, this is the condoned, and this is what God wants for these people? I mean, in most of those cases that I can remember offhand, it was not at all condoned. In fact, it led to problems down the road, and it was often a distrust of God that led people to do that, like Abraham specifically. Like saying, I don't trust that I'm ever going to be able to pull this off with my wife, so I'm just going to get a servant girl, that that's going to be the way that I make your plan work out, right? Okay, I mean, I know that happens for multiple generations, too. He's not the only one. I think that it's an interesting point you bring up, that it's about the marriage to another woman that actually creates the adultery in that case. But again, I think that's a cultural thing we have to remember, that the idea of just divorcing a woman and then living single the rest of your life just wasn't really in their mind. I mean, you were divorcing another woman and you were going to get remarried. The idea of finding Jewish men that were unmarried was pretty rare, which is going to highlight actually what we're going to talk about next. So just keep that thought in mind. So, but I think if you go back, it says that he causes her to become an adulteress, right? So just by that act, and then anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So there it's a little bit of both. The, yeah, you can say that's specific to that culture, but then how do we deal with it in our culture where like people could get divorced and then not remarried? Like I've seen a situation where like someone got divorced and remarried and it wasn't as much a problem with like one particular person. They didn't have a problem with it until they got remarried and then they condemned it openly. Okay, but let me ask you this. When you see these words from Jesus, what God has joined together, let man not separate. To me, that's a commandment. To me. Like, I don't need to have Jesus say divorce is a sin. Because I understand sin is not doing the things that God intends for us. Right? So if, if he's telling me, here's the standard. This is what's the ideal that God has set up for us. So if, if we tear it apart, it's wrong. Right? Would you agree with that? I mean, that's sin. That's, that's all I would need. I wouldn't need, like, to have the, the, you know, the thing spelled out in the same way. That would, be, that would be why today, we, I mean, he's actually using that as part of the argument to respond to them. And then he's saying, going further, to answer this why then question. But I still think that it would be, I would say, undeniable that if you look at the scriptures, especially these parts, you would say, yes, God believes that divorce is a sin. Look, we always talk about sins of omission and commission. We have to be, think about those things. Like if you don't go out and do what God tells you to do, it's a sin. You go, but I haven't done anything. Right. But that could still be sin. Or by not feeding, clothing, visiting, loving. Like you're still sinning, right? Because it's not the ideal that he set for us. So in these cases, he's actually narrowing it down in response to their question to go even further and be even tougher than even the standard they're asking him. So they've asked him the first question back here. Like, what do you think about divorce? He's saying, shouldn't happen. They're saying, well, then why then should this happen? And he's saying, this is what Moses allowed, but I'm telling you this is how it should be. I mean, look, I, I, I look at the words, and it says, except for marital unfaithfulness, and you could look at that and say, well, then he's actually saying, you're not sinning. 
I think what I would read is you're saying you're not committing adultery intentionally, but it's still not what God wants. Don't we counsel that way in people in churches now? Like people who have committed adultery, we still think if there's a way that this could be worked out and you could stay together, that would still be better. That would still be closer to what the intent should be. We recognize with reality, and sometimes we give up too easily, that that doesn't always happen. But why? Like, just that only, like, an adultery already happened, like, what's divorce, like, after that? Like, if, if adultery is the thing you're trying to avoid that's worse, then if adultery does happen in a marriage, why do we, as, or why does this happen as a church? We say, no, no, you should try and still work it out. Like, well, you've already done the worst you can do. Like, We're not in the sin avoidance business. We're in the restoration of people business. When God looks at us and says, you should not have sex before marriage, there's a reason for it. Not just because he's a rule maker but because he knows that once you become physically attached to somebody and you don't live with them forever, you're going to be hurt. And you do that repeatedly and you will be hurt not just a little, but a lot, right? To the point where you will no longer function correctly with your heart in the way that you were before you were hurt repeatedly through sexual like intimacy that's been torn apart. In a marriage, the two are supposed to become intimate and become one flesh. That's a very significant description. Not just a social construct, not just a union of convenience, but actually, like he's describing, a oneness that some people say relates to his oneness in some way. Like a love that's so intricate that it's inseparable. So that when you tear it apart, it's going to hurt you. That's why churches today would try to reconcile people not because they're saying, well, let's save you one more sin on the board, you know, because you already got so many going, like, I just can't put another one up there for you. It's more like to say, look, the damage has been done, if you're going to call it sin. We're all outside of that by a long shot. But if we can still bring wholeness to this relationship somehow, and forgiveness, and healing in some way, that's going to be very significant to be able to do that so that you can still go on and heal and remain one as opposed to tear people apart. That's, that's why I think churches do that. Jill. Do you also think that these passages are talking about protection for women because in this age, divorced women, what are they gonna do? They can't earn a living, they can't support themselves. Yeah, I think people look and say the fact that Jesus is kind of flipping it a little bit and putting this emphasis on the man in this particular case is significant. And we don't really see the significance as much, but compared to any other statement, including his own earlier, but any other rabbi statement that had ever commented on these types of passages, this was significant and seemed to be a protection for women. Um, kind of on what you were talking about just before, um, my, one of my best friends, his father was leading a group and he was talking about how he had married, he had two, three children, and then he divorced, and then he married again. And he was leading this group talking about using this image of if you have one plank of wood, or like a board of wood, and you, the, mar the act of marriage is taking that piece of wood and gluing it really with heavy glue to another piece of board. The act of divorce then would be to tear those things apart, and now you have pieces just kind of torn apart you. It's kind of a mess. And then to take that, that board that now has parts of it ripped out of it and pieces of another of the relationship kind of just lingering there, take another board and you glue it to that board and then you tear those two apart. It's just, it becomes this horrible mess in someone's life where they, they aren't able to relate 
to the person anymore. And so it'd be better to reconcile to that in that first situation than to go through that and then just kind of continue this really horrible process that destroys your life and the people around you. But aren't there marriages that really destroy people's lives, like just by themselves? I mean, like, I think that that's a valid point to at least address, like, that those exist, and that some people potentially, I mean, I don't know every situation, but, like, potentially there's probably some situations where, like, divorcing would be this terrible mess that was, like, created. It'd be, like, at least what it would look like, and it'd be apart from God's standard, but it would look like that this would be a better thing for both people, potentially, at least one of them, that it would get them out of the terrible mess. Like, so I, and again, that maybe goes into the physical and verbal abuse that Morgan brought up. Like, I don't know. Like, I just think that part of that experience is why the divorce rate is so high. Like, part of it. Like, Yeah, let me be clear, because Jason's already brought it up, and I kind of responded, but I want to make sure that I was heard, that some commentators say that you cannot use this passage to decide whether a woman who's in an abusive relationship has permission or not to leave the marriage. That's their view is that what this is talking to the right of men in the first century to be able to declare that their wives are no longer their wives. And it's talking about the consequence to them if they do that, especially if they remarry. Because that other view is not in sight here, that other situation is not directly in sight, some commentators say we just can't use this verse one way or another we have to use the general principles, but the general principles are no better for us in that regard. The general principles are still, let's not tear people apart. But as Philip would say to response to that, if the being in the marriage is what's tearing people apart and hurting them beyond, that's why many people today, and I hope it's not just because we'd like to read it this way and it tugs at our hearts and our emotions want it to read, but many people today, a fair reading of what Jesus would say, would say that's a different story. Some people have tried to expand the word that's used for adultery or used here. And in other places, the word is pornea, so it describes a whole host of sexual deviances, not just adultery. In other cases, they're just trying to say there are other reasons. And, I, and we would be very careful that we can't use our experiences, good or bad, to then decide what the standard should be, especially because we can come up with an example every which way, and that's not going to resolve the standard that God has set. I think that's why we have to, that initial pronouncement by Jesus, you know, let man not separate it, has to be the guiding principle. And then, the other thing we don't talk about very often is, I mean, there might be places where instead of an official divorce, like, there's a separation, you know, but not a divorce. Because of thing, because of these strong statements, and I'm not saying that, I don't know, it's just, one thing that we have to be careful of, especially in America, is we elevate freedom to the highest good that gets us into trouble at times um, and things like this where you know my husband my wife doesn't respect me anymore which is awful and it is a big problem but i have the right you know goes back to our entitlement goes back to all these other things because it becomes a freedom to say i'm done with this marriage or, or whatnot and it's like wait a minute let man not you know that has to be our guiding principle is there any hope for reconciliation is there anything besides divorce i mean are there these things that can be done because that should be a last ditch effort well, we've talked before, just to close out this part, I don't know if it's just that we let ourselves off the hook too easily, like, oh, we're forgiven, whatever, it's just one more sin, uh, it's already been paid for. Is it that somehow we've bought into an idea, especially as Americans, that we have a right to be happy in every circumstance? Uh, and, and we're quick to bail on anything that doesn't make us happy or fit our views. 
Um, I don't know, maybe we're far too fickle. But just something to think about that this does have modern implications, but again, we're not doing a whole talk on divorce. And I'm not trying to lay down the parameters for it, but it is an interesting discussion that leads to this one. So the disciples are kind of tweaked by this a little bit. And they say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So, here's another standard that he lays down. Let's make sure we understand the reference to the word eunuch. We're talking about people who were born without sexual function. Like when he says there were some people who were eunuchs because they were born that way. And he says that there were others who were made that way by men. Why would anybody want to be castrated? Well, the only example that people commonly cite is that there were some harems where the guards and the harems were castrated so that they could not molest the girls in the harem. They could just be guards and that's it. So apparently there was at least some, some background for what he's talking about, that people go, oh yes, there were some people who were crazy enough and needed a job badly enough <laughs> that they would sign up for this job or they didn't have a choice. And others, it says in the NIV, have renounced marriage, but more, probably more accurate translation is others have made themselves eunuchs, like in a figurative sense, because of the kingdom of heaven. You have to remember who's speaking this. One of those is Jesus himself, who in his human nature has decided that the kingdom of heaven, of course, is all that he pursues but he's also saying this to the disciples. They're the ones asking the question. So some of you, it's possible that you could remain unmarried for this purpose. Now remember I said to Philip earlier, like the concept of marriage and sex are intertwined to such a point that when he's talking about one, he's talking about the other. I mean, clearly eunuchs are talking about sexual function. And then he says renouncing marriage is kind of a euphemism in the NIV for just basically saying you will remain celibate for the kingdom of heaven. So I've had Anthony prepare a sign-up sheet for people who want to remain celibate for the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to pass that around right now. Maybe we could uh, get some sign-ups for that as well. Yeah. It seems like it's not clear whether it's, oh, well, just if you want to be this way. It seems like he's promoted, well, like the disciples are saying, it's better to be this way. And he sort of confirms that. Like, not everyone can accept it, but it is better. What Jesus is actually has just finished saying is responding to a question specifically about when is it permissible to divorce. And he has set up the idea that when people come together, and that is the original purpose is for them to come together, they'll become one flesh. But notice that he says not everyone can accept this word. The question about that troubles people is which word is he talking about? Is he talking about not everyone can accept this word? teaching that I've just done, which is actually a better rendering of this word. So he's saying, not everyone can accept this teaching. Which teaching? The one about marriage? So you can interpret it two ways, but either way you look at it, it means pretty much the same thing. It comes down to this. There are some people that are called to remain celibate 
and single, which is, in his mind, the same thing, for the kingdom. The one who can accept this word should accept it. But he starts off by saying, not everyone can accept it. Not everyone can accept this teaching. So this is being prescribed to those who can accept it. Some people would take it a step further and say who it's been given to them to accept it. And that's a way you could also render these same words. Like, not just that you are convinced with your mind. See, we always think about us and what we believe, what we think, and how we like something. But what Jesus is saying is, if you're able to accept this, that might be an indication that you are able to do this, that God is giving you the ability to do this. I don't think there's a contradiction between saying that this is God's intent for men and women, but some people, some people for the sake of the kingdom will forego that and actually do this instead, which is make themselves separated out for the purposes of the kingdom. Yeah, I think we're, so that's like, I mean, the natural order of human is to have marriage and procreation. <laughs> and I think in that sense, where he, when his original statement, you know, male and female, we think of the first command given is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that would be very difficult <laughs> if male and female do not come together. It's, it's not going to happen. So the natural order is that men and women get married, but of course there are many who won't. And, and this is where these things really apply. Yeah, and the question, like I said, is, is he responding to the disciples about this is, it's better not to marry. And he's saying, well, there are some for whom that's true, right? That's what he's kind of saying. There are some for whom that's true, but it is a narrow qualification. Again, read it. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it's been given. So, again, impliedly, that you would kind of know or you've been kind of called out, or you've been kind of separated out, or given some ability to say, yes, I'm one of those people. And you're going to see in a moment that that's exactly who he's talking about, that kind of forsaking of certain things that we feel entitled to. So check yourself for a moment. Is marriage something that you believe is God's plan for humanity, the way he created us? Or is marriage an entitlement that we feel like we deserve, that we want? I think it's the first one for sure. But I just want to be careful that sometimes we start to believe like it's a right that we have. It's something that we should have. We must have. And I don't see Jesus saying that. He's saying that that's the reason that people come together. And yes, that's the majority case. And that's the reason we shouldn't rip it apart. And of course, we couldn't fill the earth without doing that. But there are some people that are going to be called out to do this. And not everyone who gets called out will even want to do it. It's just to those whom it's been given, and those who can accept it should accept it. That's the thing that we should do. To read them together, it would be very odd to have him just finish talking about the great things of marriage and how people should not tear that apart, and then turn around and say, but we should all remain single. That is not even true when you look at the first and the last sentence of this phrase that he replies. It's clear that he's saying, some of you. Not many of you will be called out to singleness. And singleness, like I said, means sexual purity. They're, they're, they're the one and the same. And that's why he uses the eunuch language in the first two and many translations in the third one as well. Then just out of nowhere, the scene changes. <laughs> Talking about marriage, divorce, and sex, and then some little kids come up. <laughs> 
Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, the funny thing is, last week Morgan reminded us that in chapter 18 we had these words that I put up on the screen here. And that in this chapter, we had just finished hearing about somebody saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus pulls over the children and says, like, he called little children and had them stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he goes further than just answering the question. He says, and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That presumably was not too long ago in the teaching. And here you have these children who are brought to Jesus and disciples again. And another example of the not gettedness of the disciples say, hey, let's keep the children away. Let's review real fast. Why were the children to be kept away? Because they weren't valued in the first century. Why does Jesus say that if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child? Is it because a child is innocent? or what, what, Is it some quality of the child? No. They're in a humble posture. Look, he even says it. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, humble yourself like this child and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he was using the child as an analogy, like you think very lowly of this child. Yes, be the servant of all. Be humble. Be lowly like this child. The first or last, the last or first that kind of concept that we're going to see over and over. Apparently, the disciples don't get his view about children, especially the line that says, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me, which is, again, a little bit shocking to them to think that he would extend that level to a child. And then goes on, of course, as we heard last week and in our previous discussions, about saying anyone who causes one of these to sin would be better if they had a millstone tied around their neck. He's putting great value around these things. But the disciples clearly don't get it because they rebuke the people who are bringing the children for Jesus just to lay hands on them and bless them in kind of the tradition of the culture. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So again, he does the same thing. The kingdom of heaven to belongs to those such as these. That such as these language is important because we think like, so the only people the kingdom of heaven belongs to is children? No, again, he's using them in that very analogous way to tell us how we should be. We should be like children. All right, the rich young ruler story. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. I actually think we skip over the story to get to the meat of it really quickly. We never pause and look at these passages for a second. Jesus is doing something very remarkable when he's stopping him before he gets to the ultimate question saying, why do you call me good? Do you recognize that there is really only one who is good? Clearly, this person's intent was to come forward and try to figure out, like, what good thing must I do? Looking at Jesus says, you must be a good person. I'm coming to you to ask you about good things. And Jesus is kind of begging the question a little bit. Do you understand that there's only one who's good? Why are you calling me good? I wonder if you recognize who I am. Or I wonder if you're even asking the right question. 
But he says to him, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. I think that's significant too. How often do we hear a question about what must I do to get eternal life and have Jesus say, how about if you obey the commandments? That wouldn't be the response that we would normally give, right? Like that isn't the first thing that comes up when we say, how do I get eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commandments. This is about a, a matter of obedience as opposed to just a matter of some sort of propositional belief. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The man replies, all these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Interesting to me that he would think that he had kept all of those. <laughs> that he seems sincere, but to just summarily say, I've kept all of those things. All right, let's assume that's right. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, and that word kind of causes us to stumble. I think we need to think back to Matthew 5.48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is a high standard, but he's saying be whole. The word implies more of a wholeness, like be more complete. If you want to be more complete and whole and to achieve the higher standard, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Our tendency is to separate those two. He obeyed the commandments. Then Jesus says, go and sell everything and give to the poor. End of the discussion. That's where we stop it. That's kind of where we end. But notice, there's two parts that he's telling him to do. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Jesus is inviting him into discipleship. Jesus is inviting him to become one of those. It actually literally means come and get on the road with us. Be part of the group. Come and be discipled. I don't think that it would operate by itself. Just go and give to the poor. That's it. And then you'll have what you're seeking. You'll have eternal life. Jesus is saying that eternal life is about discipleship. Why? Again, he's even questioning him from the very beginning. You call me good. Like, do you recognize that there's no one good but God? We're not here about earning things. We're not here about being able to, to, to make ourselves perfect just through those things. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I think this, the way the NIV translates, is kind of a little bit unfortunate. I was looking at Morgan's Bible. He has the NRSV, and it said he went away grieving. A much stronger word than just sad. I mean, this guy was bummed. Not just a little bit, but a lot. And it's difficult to connect. Here it says because he had great wealth, but actually a better interpretation is because he had many material possessions. And I think that's significant because when we read this, many people in the church have been tempted to read the story of the rich young ruler to say, well, the reason that Jesus asked him to give up everything was because he was rich and we all know that money was his particular God, so Jesus knew that he had to give up his God and follow Jesus. That's why he asked him to do that. He wouldn't ask anybody else to do that. I think that's not true. I think that's an American church trying to justify why we should not feel more uncomfortable when we hear this passage. I think if you translate it the other way, he went away grieving because he had many material possessions. That would describe every one of us. Great wealth tends to think, oh, yeah, he was just totally out there. I mean, he just had so much. We have so much. All of us have many material possessions. 
that we would not give up to follow Jesus. I know that because we don't give them up. Now, I want to be very careful because we've talked about stewardship extensively. And you can go listen to all of our talks on stewardship online. And I want to be careful that when we talk about giving things up, it's not always about selling it and giving it to the poor like in this example. What Jesus calls people to do when he says, give it up, is he means like literally use it for my kingdom. Because you're still a steward. You still are possessing the very things the master gives you, and you're supposed to use them for the kingdom. We don't. And even those of us who think they're living simply and not gaining material possession are still not using the material possession for the kingdom. There's a fine line that we have to walk, and I'm not going to go into it because we've talked about the parable of the talents endlessly, and we've talked about it in our stewardship discussion you need to struggle with the tension between being a productive member of the kingdom, stewarding his resources to do something greater than just what you have in your hand, parable of talents, versus being a hoarder of material possessions, like the rich fool or the rich young ruler. So Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why a camel and why an eye of a needle? Well, a camel is probably the biggest thing they could imagine in terms of like some sort of animal. That's like the biggest animal in the Middle East. And the eye of a needle is probably the smallest opening you could think of. So he's basically making another one of the Jesus type analogies. Like it would be easier for the biggest thing you could imagine to go through the littlest thing you could imagine. Now people have tried to make a lot out of this. Growing up, I was taught actually that there's actually a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle and a camel would have to get down on its hands and knees and go through the gate like this. And that's what he was really saying was it's not that rich people couldn't go to heaven. It's just that they would have to get down on their hands and knees and walk through this very narrow gate. Guess what? I heard that at a very rich church growing up. <laughs> Most people go, there is no evidence that there ever was such a gate. And this is just a story that's become kind of like Christian folklore to make us feel better. Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He's saying shocking things that should shock us because we love our stuff so much. He's saying it's easier for the biggest thing you can imagine to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Why were they astonished? Is it just because they thought, God's going to make a camel go through the eye of a needle? Like, I've got to see that. No, I think why they were astonished is the same reason that many of us sometimes are kind of astonished. Maybe not in this group, but I think it does ill us as a church. In the first century and in the 21st century, people equate God's material blessing with something that is some favor that he's done. Like, your status in the kingdom somehow could be identified by your material status. I'm not saying that God doesn't materially bless people. I'm not saying that he doesn't do it occasionally in response to how they live out their life and what they're going to do with it for the kingdom. But in the first century and anywhere on TBN, there's this connection that if you're blessed, if you're right with God, he's going to shower down the riches on you. So to the disciples even, they're thinking, wait a minute. If a rich person isn't going to be saved, then who's going to be saved? 
Why would they think that? Because a rich person has probably been blessed by God. They're in right standing with God. Why else would God show all this favor to them? What's the favor? All the material stuff. There was this relationship. Now we can remember why it was that the Pharisees seemed to always kind of have the good life going for them. And Jesus calls them out for it. We just think it's because they're kind of just these corrupt religious folks. But it could also be a more mature view would be that that's the way the society was. They expected their religious leaders to kind of have a little bit nicer life because that showed they were in right standing with God somehow. So here, even the disciples are tripped up by this thinking. Wait a minute. If a rich person who's presumably in right standing with God, and that's why he has so much stuff, if that person's not going to be saved, who's going to be saved? And at this point, I want to point out that we've got some very interesting language going on in this passage. We've already talked about eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, saved. All these words are being used interchangeably. And it gives us a lot of our language later in theology because they're all being connected by Matthew. Like they all seem to be kind of this conflation of terms over and over, that he comes up to say, here's how you get eternal life, here's how you get in the kingdom of heaven, here's how we're saved. Very strange use of the word here, but they're all kind of being conflated. Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jason. If they're thinking that the rich people are the ones that get into the kingdom of heaven, then what, what kind of salvation is it to get into the kingdom of heaven? if they already have the blessings of God? Like, what is it, what are they being saved from if they are the rich people then? In this passage, they are equating eternal life, kingdom of God, and salvation, and they're using them all, like, almost synonymously. So the salvation they're talking about when they say, who can be saved, is part of the conversation that begins with, how do I get eternal life? they're listening to that conversation when he shows that it's difficult and the guy goes away sad they turn around and they say well then who can be saved and he's saying first of all about the rich it's impossible for them but everything's possible with God but it still is kind of one of those kind of warnings where everybody has to like stop and think clearly first the rich should tremble and second we should all tremble because we're rich <laughs> and we just don't think of ourselves as rich Randy. Like you said, it's referring to eternal life. So when they're saying who could be saved, they're being like, who could be saved from death, right? Yeah, they're talking about the word saved is most often used in many of the synoptic gospels is like more of just like save me from my present circumstance. Especially the word that's rendered here from the Greek to English as saved is most often used in that way. But here, it's just because it sits in this passage that's literally talking about eternal life and the kingdom of heaven and those kinds of things in the kingdom of God. And when you get to this word, like the meaning has to be read in context. You can't just say, well, they obviously went off and talked about something different. I mean, it's still one conversation. Yeah, so that's the way it's stated. So again, Jesus' reply, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I just put up here 1 John 3, 17, just as a kind of a backstop for us, just as a reminder passage. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And I think that is the same kind of concept that John later writes about. We have to kind of wonder what this person could have done when we say, like, why did he ask him to sell all these things? Uh, probably because we live in a world where there's constantly need. How far do we go? You have to listen to our stewardship discussion. It's too much to do right now. Peter answered him. So Jesus just said, 
Here's the, here's the thing for rich people. Peter answered him. Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will be there for us? Now, you could read this as a very self-serving question. You could be like, so Peter's thinking, no, wait a minute. We left everything. So if you get all this good stuff, like, what do we get? The fact that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter is good, because that would have been like number four or five at this point, or who knows how many it would be that he'd rebuked him. The fact that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter, or at least it's not recorded that way, probably indicates that at least he was either sincere in asking that or was still a little bit confused. Like, I don't understand. So rich people, they might have a hard time unless God makes it possible. It might be impossible. Or, no, it is impossible, Jesus says. Not might be. It is impossible. What about us? So what does that mean for us exactly? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, at the rebirth of all things, when they're regenerated, he's literally making an allusion to the new earth, the new heaven. When the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's the part that applies to us and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. I'm going to take that last line and just leave it dangling, because it actually begins the passages for next week. But I want you to focus on the line right before it. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. When will we receive it? I don't know. It could be this life. It could be the next life. Jesus does not invite us to begin in the kingdom that's going to just be starting in the next life. It begins now. Some people may receive some things now. Some people may receive it later. And he spends plenty of time in his teachings, especially in Matthew, talking about the rewards that come later. You inherit eternal life. Inherit. Not earn but it's an inheritance of eternal life. But I think the part we have to focus on the most is the first part. How many of us would do that? How many of us are tempted to look at the story of the rich young ruler and go, that was because he's rich. That's because he has great wealth, and I don't. I don't have anything. I don't need to do this. This isn't about me. But these things apply to everyone who's left these things. In Luke 14, Jesus reminds, like, anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This everything concept has come back to us again, and we've talked about it before. So to close it out, leaving that last line dangling, some commentary from different people about what this, this story could be about. Here's one. Blomberg says, Jesus repeatedly commands his followers to use all of their possessions not just some fixed percentage of them for kingdom priorities. Some of us in here need to work on that to actually learn to give, well, just give. And then some of us need to learn to give more, not to a certain level, but to where we're using everything we have for its priority. Blomberg also says, 
but many who claim to trust in Christ are still unprepared to serve him with all of their possessions. Like we are eager to do certain things in the world, but we're doing it either with other people's money or we're hoping that somebody else funds it instead of actually doing it with our possession, like following him to do his priorities, some of us are okay with. Doing his priorities in this world with our possessions that we've been entrusted with, we have more trouble with. And some of us, I would dare say, have trouble going out to gain possession to do his priority, which is the parable of the talent. Another commentator says, this is Ritterbaugh, says, the rich young ruler probably knew logically that eternal life was worth more than his possessions. But he must have told himself that he did not really have to give up his wealth to gain it. And I think that's a common ailment among people maybe older than us. Who think every day, yeah, of course eternal life is worth more. But I'm not really sure that he had to really give it up. That's probably what the rich young ruler told himself. Yeah, I don't know, that, that guy's probably extreme. That's probably just an extreme view. That, that rabbi probably a little out there for my taste. Gundry also speaking maybe to the generation we're in. The fact that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kinds of people to whom he would have issued that command. And I know plenty of people in that place who've taken solace in the fact that, well, Jesus only did that with the rich young ruler. I didn't see him making that repeated command elsewhere. Right. But if he had met you, he would have done it. We have a terrible time with greed and hanging on to the possessions that don't belong to us. They all belong to the Lord. So let me close in prayer tonight and just pray that God would open up our hands a little bit with the things that he has already given us so that we could return them back to him. And we'll close in worship. Lord God, it's a privilege to give to you, as David said, when he was raising money for the temple, because everything already comes from your hand. Just the very fact that we're allowed to engage in a partnership with you is stunning. You, Lord, who need no, no material possession, you, Lord, who spoke the entire creation, somehow rely on us to steward your possessions and then to take care of the people that you love in this world with them. And Lord, we all know we're doing a miserable job. We are failing. We hold on to things. We're idle. We don't work hard to produce for your kingdom. We're scared. We're anxious. And Lord, we dream of building our own heaven and our own gods out of the material possessions we have. And Lord, I dare say this because it's a difficult word to say, but break us of that. And that for some of us is going to mean a true difficult time of hardship. And for others it's going to mean stretching. And for yet others it's going to mean stepping out in areas we've never done before. But Lord, in the end, you're asking us to be found faithful. Lord, let us not set aside examples like the rich young ruler and make them into just lessons from the scriptures. May we be people who are willing to set aside every part of us and find ourselves receiving so much more from you and inheriting eternal life. Pray this in your name. Amen.